Morning. All right, like Jeff said earlier, I'm Andy. Uh, I've got to speak here about a year and a half ago. I uh, got to be with your students this whole weekend, so I want to thank you for that opportunity, for Ridge, for trusting me. Um, your students are incredible, by the way. I don't know if you knew that or not, but your students are incredible. They were, they had every reason to be exhausted. They had every reason to fall asleep. And Jeff does such a great job of pouring into them and leading them that they were locked in 100% of the way, 100% of the time. And we have guys like Dallas and Jake leading worship. Um, like you just said, like it's, it's on you if you're not following them into the throne room. I mean, because can you throw, this is totally ad-libbing. Can you throw the slide that said, uh, you split the sea so I could walk right through it? My fears were drowned in perfect love. Can you throw that slide up real quick? Because here's what worship is. Like 100%, here's what these two guys do, because they're great musicians, but they're ministers first and foremost. This is not a Belton, City of Belton 4th of July parade where I sit in my lawn chair and I pour buckets of sweat and I clap as the wagons drive on by. This is a New Orleans-style parade for believers. This is a, I'm in my lawn chair, I see the jazz band go by, except this jazz band was called Jake and Dallas. And I'm like, yes, yes, I do remember that. I remember that exact moment. I remember this summer when it looked like I was about to drown. And, and the, the seas just split and we walked right through it. And as, as the, the, the walls of water crashed on us behind, all my fears were drowned. This whole thing is supposed to remind us as believers of these great big markers in our life of when Jesus showed up and God was God. Not that he never, is, he never ceases to be God, but that there are times in my life when I don't let God be God in my life. So the fact that these guys just led us into the throne room, I hope you, I hope you weren't on your duff because you missed it. But those of us that took this thing like a New Orleans parade, that's, that's where my granddad's from, so like, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm accurate with this. But the, the, this thing's just like the New Orleans parade. I get off and it's like, Dallas, Jake, thanks for leading us in the throne room, but now it's me and my Jesus. And here's the thing, this was phenomenal what happened with your students, but here's why there's what we call the boomerang effect in ministry. Because my job is young adults. Think of millennials. We all like to complain about them. But essentially at our church, I am the minister to millennials. Everyone who was born before September 11, 2001 and after Jan 1, 1980. Everybody in that window, that's who I'm a minister to. And we've noticed the boomerang effect. Here's why the boomerang effect happens in church. Because we think that's the only place that worship happens. And what they need is to see the rest of us. And it happened here. It really did. I'm not coming at you. I'm trying to encourage you to keep going. They need to see that it continues to happen as we keep walking with Jesus. That has nothing to do with this service. But dang, Dallas, that was good. All right, here's the deal. 1940, there was a man by the name of Cheryl Jennings that was born. And when Cheryl turned three years old, just like a country kid, nothing special about Cheryl. When he was three years old, he simultaneously contracted meningitis, polio, and cat scratch fever. Up until a month ago, I genuinely thought cat scratch fever was only the name of a Ted Nugent song. (laughs) The teaching pastor at my church laughed me out of his office. My mom laughed at me through the phone, told me my grandmother had it at one point, to which my initial sarcastic thought but did not come out of my mouth so I don't get mollywopped, was, I didn't know that. I was negative years old. When my grandmother had cat scratch fever. But it's true, he had all three, and they thought he was going to die. 
As a matter of fact, when he left the hospital, the doctors did not send him home because he was better. They sent him home so he could pass in comfort at three years old. Not the saddest part of Cheryl's story. Immediately upon realizing that he would live, so we're out of the, what looks like the tough part, one thing that they noticed is Cheryl was going blind at three years old. I do not know how a three-year-old communicates that. I have a three-year-old. He would later recall the only visual memory that he had from his entire life up to the, to the 90s. The only visual memory that he had was that his family had a farm and there was a pasture. And the pasture had a creek running through it. It's a beautiful picture. It's heartbreaking if it's the only visual memory you have. If you're in your 20s and you don't know what your mom looks like, you don't know what your dad looks like, you don't know what your family house looks like, all you know is that there's a pasture with a creek. Hopefully the memory happened in the springtime, right? Like not at the end of fall where it's dead grass because then that's a real sad day. But that's Cheryl's only visual memory. By the time he's eight years old, he can only distinguish between light and dark. Not light and dark stripes on a shirt. Not light and dark crayons in a box. Light room, dark room. That's all he can see. By the time Sheryl is 10 years old, he is 100% blind. 10 years old, that's a fourth grader. She's getting ready for star. Sheryl's learning to read Braille in 1950. For the next 41 years, Sheryl lived as a blind man. And if you think about that for a second, 41 years of living as a blind man, don't try to imagine being blind by closing your eyes, but I do want you to imagine what living like a blind man would be. It would be there's no visual cue that helps me recognize my loved ones. I don't know blonde, brunette, red hair. I don't know short, tall. I don't know skinny, athletic, big-boned, really, really big-boned. I don't know any of those things about the people around me. I don't recognize anything that way. I recognize the sound of your voice. I recognize your smell. Some of us, we already recognize your smell. All right. I recognize the ones that are really close to me. I recognize the different feature on your jawline whenever I touch it. Or maybe from one ant to another, I can recognize the difference in how they grab my shoulder as they enter the room behind me. These are the things that Sheryl used to live his life. This doesn't make him less. This doesn't make him stupid or anything that we cast pity on. He lived different, but he was very skilled at living different. I navigate my world as a man who can see by knowing north, south, east, west, and feet, yards, and miles. That's not how Sheryl navigates the world. A blind man for 41 years wakes up, pivot right, feet on the ground. Seven steps forward. Turn right. Two steps. Feel the difference in my toes. I'm not on carpet anymore. Turn left. Ten more steps. Cheryl knows how to navigate the world based on a memorized number of steps and turns. He knows that when he walks the hallway as a blind man, he traces his hand along the sheetrock and textured walls so he can feel when he hits a door frame. Andy, why does this matter? Because you've got to know how a blind man lives to understand what's going on here. Because when he hits the door frame, he feels for hinges. Because as a blind man, he knows that when he feels hinges, he takes another half step so he doesn't run into the side of the door. But if he can feel the latch, he knows he can turn right there. 41 years, Sheryl lives as a blind man. And he lives well. He has a job. He lives on his own. 
He knows the memorized number of steps to the microwave, and he knows just how far to space himself from the countertop so that he can open the cabinets without busting his knee one more time. Shoal knows all of those things. Shoal lives a, a efficient life as a blind man. If you're going to imagine what it's like to be blind, please make sure that you imagine how you navigate the world, not just closing your eyes. 1991, Cheryl's future bride, Barbara, asked Cheryl to go see her ophthalmologist. You see, Barbara's family was all diabetic, so they had an ophthalmologist. Being Cheryl, loving Barbara, he's like, why not? What's the worst that can happen? I'm already blind. So they go check this out. Now, here's the deal. Cheryl goes to the, to the ophthalmologist. The ophthalmologist examines him. 1991, this is a 100% true story. All right, you can research all this. I have, but you can on your own if you want. So they go to the ophthalmologist. The ophthalmologist is like, look, we think we've got a surgery that will fix this, Cheryl. So what they decide is they're going to operate on one eye first, restore vision to that eye, collect data for a year, rehab him for a year, and any adjustments that got to be made, they're going to make it to the second eye one year later. So they go for this. Now, I've asked you to imagine living life as a blind man. Imagine living life as a blind man for 41 years. It's longer than I've been alive. It's like two or th- it's like three or four of some of those. Okay, forty-one years. It's all you know how to do. Imagine what you're feeling the night before dramatic life change, impending life change, life change that's so exciting to you. Your family is willing to lay down some serious coin to make sure this happens. Life change that you are willing to give a whole lot for. Imagine what you're feeling the night before. Is Cheryl thinking, I get to know what my mom looks like? Is Barbara thinking, he's going to see me walk down the aisle? Because before this surgery, that wasn't possible. That wasn't something that they considered to be an option. So they didn't even put their hopes in it. Because it would just be heartbreaking to, see, to not see that come to fruition. Imagine being so excited about life change, you don't even think about the risk. Surgery is still surgery. Doctor comes out of the operating room, into the waiting room. It was a success. We're fixing a Willem in there. You can go. Anticipation fades to the background, man. Get out of the way. I'm ready to see the life change that just took place. Get out of the way. Cheryl is in the post-op room. They begin to unwrap the gauze around his head. They unpack His eye, and this is exactly what he said to a newspaper known as the Desert News a few years later. This is Cheryl speaking about the moment he received vision after 41 years of being blind. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up, all meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blur came a voice that said, Well... Then and only then did I realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face and indeed the face of my surgeon. All of this anticipation, all of this excitement, all of this hope and life change. And what are the adjectives and adverbs that Sheryl used to describe the moment that he could see for the first time? Meaninglessness, chaos, and a blur. And not until the surgeon used What Cheryl had previously used as a blind man to recognize people, not until he spoke did Cheryl know it was his surgeon. 
Not until he stimulated a sense that Cheryl had refined as a blind man was Cheryl able to recognize that that was a face. Because he didn't know what a face looked like. He didn't know what a face looked like. Andy, how does he not know what a face looked like? Well, if I look right back there right now, I see two doors. But what my brain actually does is, as it receives the data from what my eyes see, it runs almost like a Google image search in my brain to find what matches that right there. A door. Okay, it's a door. When Cheryl goes to do that, when Cheryl's brain does the Google image search to interpret the data that his eyes pick up, all they see is a pasture with a creek. Did the surgery work? Yes. Did Cheryl have vision? Yes, but he couldn't see. If you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, number one is vision but can't see. you got to remember, Cheryl lived his whole life as a blind man. He had vision, but he couldn't yet see. This same thing is true for every person that has been saved by Jesus Christ at the moment that they get saved. I don't care if you get saved at 4, 14, 34, or 67. Before the moment that Jesus saves your soul, before the moment that you have your surgery, so to speak, you've lived your life as a blind person. I'm sorry, excuse me. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. You see, what Cheryl experienced, the anticipation and the hope and the excitement, and then that feeling of lostness afterwards. Did he have vision? Yes. Was the surgery a success? Yes. Did he know what to do with it? No. That same, that same thing is true for every person that comes to know Jesus at the beginning. But God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul's stating that at one point we were all dead. You could call that spiritually blind. That's not a bridge too far to cross. That's a parallel. That's an equivalent. We were all spiritually blind at one point. And because of God's love for us, not because of anything that we did to earn this, turns out, as a matter of fact, for Cheryl, it was Barbara's love for him that started this. Cheryl didn't do anything. Because of God's love for me, He provided a means for me to go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. To go from spiritually blind to spiritually sighted. The problem is, the moment that I get saved, I have vision, but I can't see. How can you say that, Andy? Because you've never seen before. So when your life... And and you're going throughout your day and you see data. There's things that your brain picks up, that your spirit picks up. It's got nothing to check that against. So you've had your whole life that you live as somebody who doesn't follow Jesus. And it makes sense. It makes sense that you learn to work as an employer or an employee who doesn't know Jesus if you've never been saved. It makes sense that as a student, you navigate the hallways as somebody who's not been saved if you've never been saved. That makes sense to me. My issue is, how are you supposed to know how to do those things as somebody who's saved on day one of walking with Jesus? How do you know how to walk with Jesus if you've never walked with Jesus? I mean... I know I only taught students for 11 years, but it was, it was pretty simple. Like at some point I realized they didn't know what I know. 
And the faster I got to that point, the easier it was for me to get them to where I was. You get saved, you're not made better. You're not fixed, you're not flipped, you're not chip and jojoed. You're made new. You're made complete. You are now a new living person. Although we have vision, we don't know how to see. You do have the Holy Spirit to guide you. I'm not going to negate that. I'm not going to minimize that. But think about this for just a moment. Before you got saved, you've never heard the voice of your shepherd because you don't have a shepherd. I am a shepherd and my sheep know my voice. Yes. But if I got saved at 24, that means I got 23 years of something else guiding my decision making. And the first time I heard his voice, I responded and surrendered my life to him. But on day one after that, when the gauze comes off, I've got all these other things that determined how I lived my life before. I need help to know how to discern which voice is that original sweet voice that called me to himself. That original sweet voice that said, here is salvation. Here is life as it was meant to be. I need help to know how to hear and respond to that. Because I responded enough to give him my life and my salvation and my soul and my future. I responded enough to trust him with all that. But I don't know how that lives out day to day. I got vision, but I can't see. So what we have to do is we got to learn how to see. That's number two, learn to see. Go left to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you're like me, you've already put post-its in your Bible of where we're going, so you're already there. But you didn't know. That's a dirty trick that people who preach do. You should have seen the relief that uh, a college student in our ministry had whenever we read this passage the other day, a few weeks ago. And it was actually a stranger walking by. I was like, I think you want 2 Corinthians 5.17. I was like, I think you're right. Um, And he was right. It's a beautiful passage. Got vision, can't see. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning if you've had that surgery moment, if you've had a moment that you can point to where you've been saved by Jesus. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You see, I've got this new life, this new body that I'm living and I'm walking in, except I don't really know how to get around in it. Like, it's, it just feels new. It's like a brand new track suit or a powerlifting suit. Like, the first thing you've got to do is maneuver that thing around because you've never walked in it before. This is a new life. The old has passed away. The new has come. So, Sheryl, this is what they did in his world. This is how this actually played out in 1991, 2, and 3, following his surgery. There were three professionals that Sheryl met with regularly. The ophthalmologist, surgeon, the physical ther- a physical therapist... What's up, Kyle? And then a neurologist named Dr. Oliver Sachs. Three professionals that he would have weekly appointments with that knew exactly where he was, exactly where he needed to be, and the distinct milestone markers along the way that get him to a man who no longer lives as a blind man, but as a man who lives with sight. So here's what would happen. This was vital. This was absolutely necessary if Cheryl was going to live with sight. That he would show up the first time. They're like, okay, we've got to develop a visual sensory store in his brain. So they'd start with flashcards. They started with shapes. Two-dimensional shapes. Circle. 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 Why do they keep repeating it? Because he's got to build the neurological pathways within his brain that allow him to recognize it faster and faster and faster. 
problem with this is, the hindrance in this is, they only met once a week. And let's say they met on Tuesday. Well, sure goes on Tuesday, and let's say we're doing letters. Letters, letters, A, 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 B, B, B. All right? Coming off the momentum from Tuesday, I get to Wednesday, and Cheryl's starting to live a little bit like a sighted man. That's an A. That's a B. That's a circle. This is great. Cheryl's starting to live in the new life, but then we get to like Thursday, and all of a sudden it's Thursday morning, and Cheryl is hangry. Man, he is so hungry, he's just got to get something. So he gets some cereal. And here's the problem with only having these appointments at the first. is Cheryl takes his spoon, dips it in the bowl full of cereal, and then all of a sudden he misses and smacks himself in the face. Why did he do that? Because they had not yet got to depth perception. Like, this is actual real stuff. You see, my brain knows that as an object gets bigger, it's getting what? A person who's been blind for 41 years doesn't know that. Is it still a spoon if it's getting bigger? That's something he actually had to think through. And he didn't know the answer. So he spills milk. Well, wasn't he paying attention? Yeah, but they hadn't covered depth perception yet. Well, Andy, what's that got to do with me and walking with Jesus? Because by Thursday, Cheryl realizes that a whole lot of life was easier to navigate as a blind man because he did it for 41 years. So he starts to trace the walls in the hallway with his fingers again. And by Saturday, he starts to count his steps again because I don't stub my toe when I count steps anymore. And by the time Monday rolls around, Cheryl is walking without even trying to open his eyes anymore. He's using his dog as a blind man would use the dog again. And then we get back to Tuesday. And we learn the next lesson. And we try to walk as a sighted man on Wednesday. By the time Thursday rolls around, something happens. And we're reminded, life was a lot easier when I lived like a blind man. Cheryl had vision, but he couldn't see. Cheryl needed to learn how to see. Our parallel is that we do this. This is vital. This is crucial. Hebrews 10.25 makes no bones about it. Do not forsake this. I can have church on a fishing boat. No, you can't. Because <laughs> you can't be a part of the body. You can't be a body part if you're apart from the body. This was made so that you could grow as a member, as a part of the body. This was made so that you could get that expertise. This was made so you could get those assessments. But the fact is, if this is all there is to you, then I don't understand how you think you can make it to next Sunday without living as a blind man starting on Tuesday. And if you can, please share it with us. Because those of us in the ministry, if we could start teaching that, you got no idea what kind of raises we would get. It can't happen. What Cheryl had to do is he had to learn how to see. So here's what his, his neurologist said. They realize these appointments aren't doing enough. Still got five days a week he lives blind. His neurologist would write this in his report later on. This is Dr. Oliver Sacks speaking. He said, The blind man must die, even though he could see, before the sighted man could be the one to live. Cheryl was the same person the whole time. The problem was five days a week he lived like the blind man with sight. 
My walk with Jesus didn't, doesn't really take off. Didn't take off until I put to death the blind version of me. Until I put to death the old one. Well, how do you put that to death? you got to give life to the new one. So here's what they actually did. There was a person in Cheryl's world that spent time with him. Now, what was their qualifications? They could see. They could see. That was it. They had no professional degree. No expertise. They weren't an optometrist on the side. They didn't work at some eye vision place. That, was, that didn't sound clear. They had no expertise in this. They could see better than a blind man. They could see better than Cheryl. Why does that matter? Because they would hang out with Cheryl and they were the ones that noticed. Hey Cheryl, why are you tracing your hands on the wall? Cheryl, are you counting your steps? Because you're walking at the exact same distance with every step and at the same cadence. Cheryl, are you playing with the dog or are you depending on the dog? Cheryl needed somebody that noticed when he started to live blind. Because if they noticed in a loving way, guess what would happen? Cheryl would start to practice living with sight. They would be the ones that would help him learn three-dimensional shapes. Dr. Oliver Sacks said it wasn't until this person spent time with Cheryl that Cheryl started to live as a man who could see. And when this person would be removed from Cheryl's life for a while... Cheryl would start to live like a blind man again. Turn with me left in your Bible just a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. This is a game-changing verse for me in learning how to see. Paul writes this. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. This is not an arrogant statement. This is not. This is a factual statement. Paul's saying, I am closer to Jesus than you are. Let's be honest with one another. So if I am following Jesus and you begin to following me, the transitive property of geometry says that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That means if I'm following Jesus and you follow me, who are you actually following as I continue to follow Jesus? You're following Jesus. Andy, are you telling us to follow you? No, I'm saying, look, there's Kyle Tanner right there. And if the goal is to get to that wall, Kyle Tanner is closer to the wall than I am. He has no expertise except that he's closer to the wall. And if I care about learning how to see, I look for anyone around me that's closer to the wall than I am. And I say, how did you get from this point, because I saw you there during the Lord's Supper, to that point right there? Because while I know you are a man and I know you are imperfect, I also know that you are closer to the wall than I am. So if you can tell me how to get to where you are, I'm closer to the Jesus that I gave my life to. Which means I learn how to see instead of living like somebody who's blind despite having vision. If I have received the greatest miracle in the history of the world, why would I be happy or content to spend five days a week living blind? It doesn't make sense to me, which is why it irritated me about myself for so long. Because I knew I had vision, but I didn't see it all. I'd feel guilty doing one thing, and I wouldn't feel too happy doing the other. And it took somebody to be like, Andy, why are you dragging your hand on the walls again? I don't know. Because I'm scared in the middle of the hallway. 
Yeah, well, it turns out I've walked that hallway before. Let me coach you through. So Tanner coaches me on how to get to the wall. It's not an arrogant statement. Turn right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is still learning to see. Look, this is called discipleship. And if you're really unsure if this is actually how the Bible does discipleship, I'm going to tell you, don't read the first chapter of just about every letter Paul wrote because he's pretty explicit. I mean, he's real explicit. Don't read anything about Moses and Joshua. Don't go touch Joel 1.3. Don't look at Titus chapter 2. Not if you don't think this is how it's supposed to be because the Bible's real clear on it. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. This is Paul writing to the church. When he says us, he's not talking hired holy hands. He's talking people that know how to see. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Why does that part matter, Andy? Why did you keep that one in there? Because here's what happened. This group in in Thessalonica sees Tanner over there. I've called Kyle Tanner since like 2009. All right, So they see Tanner closer to the wall. They see Paul and his group closer to the wall. And they start to do the things that they do. And what happened was is this other group of people noticed that they weren't living blind anymore. But they could tell, wait, is that Cheryl? Where is his dog? How did he not get hit by a car in traffic? How is Cheryl able to not spill his milk? Is Cheryl sending a text message? How did he learn that? They imitated somebody that was closer to the king. And they learned how to see. When you learn how to see like somebody who can see, it sets an example for people that knew you when you were blind. It sets an example for people that currently have vision but don't know how to see. It sets an example for the other people who are ahead of you to keep going because they know that if they get off the trail, you're going to get off the trail too. This is what makes us transition from casual Christians who place all our hope in politics to dangerous disciples who truly, that doesn't matter because my king's eternal. And you can set any policy you want because I'm going to walk in that room and change the room because my eternity was changed. I don't have to broadcast temporal stuff. It's too little for a king of kings. I don't have to care too much about your policy. It's too small for the blood of a Savior. But if I can teach you how to live as somebody who can see, then you walk into the room and you're not a thermometer anymore. You're a thermostat. That means you change everyone and they want to know what makes you tick. That's where power is. Thermostats are neutral. They don't do squat. Thermometers change everything for the kingdom. Here's our last point. Go to Ephesians 4.12. You want to turn left a little bit. Just a few books. Ephesians 4.12. I really have a love-hate relationship with this verse. I love it when I feel like doing what I'm supposed to. I hate it when I just want to sit there. I hate it when I want to trace my hand on the walls. Ephesians 4.12 is very, very simple. 
to equip the saints. Again, saints just meaning believers. Anybody who's saved. God gave us these officers and these gifts and these offices in every church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What does that mean? That means that we need believers to teach other believers what living the new life looks like. I have never been anywhere that on the whole people were like, we don't need discipleship. What I have encountered on the whole, though, is people think I can't disciple someone. Andy, I live blind too much of the week. I don't know enough. That's what I do encounter. That makes sense to me. I understand it. Here's my issue with that. Jake's on the front row. He doesn't know a whole lot about being where Tanner is, except Jake's still closer to the wall than I am. Which means he's still got knowledge from the stage to row one that I don't have. It's on Jake to help anybody, to help me, get to the front row. There's no excuse for it. If you know how to take a step I've yet to take, it's on you to help make sure I take it. That's why we're all part of one body together. That's how we help nurture each other grow. Well, Andy, what do you mean? Well, if you'll read the rest of Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about it pretty clearly. We're to grow up together into the fullness of the head of Jesus Christ so that we are no longer tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of deception. So if Jake will play his role in helping me get to the front row, and Tanner will play his role in helping us get there, I'm less likely to be tossed to and fro. And if I do get tossed to and fro, I at least know where to go to keep moving. It takes somebody teaching me how to follow Jesus for me to know how to follow Jesus. Because I spent 41 years, or 24 years, or 15 years following myself, and I don't know how to follow Jesus yet. You have to teach somebody if you know how to do it. I need to see how you respond when your boss is unreasonable because I only know how a blind man does it. I need to see how you interact with your wife because I only know how a blind man does it. I need to see how you apologize to your kids or to your bride because I only know how a blind man does that. I need to see that we're at the restaurant. You show grace. You're not a flirt with the waitress. You're not belittling the the waitress. You show grace to the waitress because I only know how to interact with the waitress as a blind man. I need to see how you have friendships and what you do with those friendships because I only know what a blind man does. I need to see how you live your life because I only know how a blind man does these things. It's formal and informal discipleship. Formal means I'm spending time one-on-one with somebody. Explicitly going through certain parts of the Bible together to make sure they're learning how to see. Informal makes a generational impact, though, on households. My bride's sitting back there. Informally, a couple in Stephenville discipled us. We're a couple hours away from our parents at this point. So they invite us over for dinner. That's informal discipleship. They regularly invited us over for dinner so that I could see how one spouse did not correct the other spouse in front of us every time they misremembered a story. So that I could see how they never took a a shot at the other one or cracked a joke at the other's expense in front of us. So that I could learn over time what it looked like to protect my bride in front of people. Because that's how someone who has sight and lives with sight does it. It doesn't make them perfect. I also saw their flaws, but I saw what they aimed at over time. So then we make up excuses to get together with them. I'll break a pipe to ask them to come help fix it. 
or now that we got little ones running around, it's some of the women that are in, in the orbit of my wife's world that'll invite her to come with them to Chick-fil-A while the kids play. Why? So she can see how they parent the kids. So she can see what it looks like to take all the anxiety that's in, within you that makes you want to control every aspect of their life and learn to let go and still let God be God and not neglect parenthood. you got to learn how to do this as someone with sight, which means you got to have somebody teach you. That's not intrinsic. That's not natural. you got to have somebody teach you how to let God be God. Turn with me left. Last verse. Psalm 71.18. This beautiful thing about Memorial Baptist is it's not a church of one generation. It's a church of many generations in here. That's what it's supposed to look like. If you thought retirement meant that you're done in the faith, you may want to ignore me for a minute. So even to old age and gray hairs, Psalm 71, 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. If you're alive, God's not done trying to use you. The guy that's discipled me for four years is 60-something years old. I will not ask him how old he is. But I've known him for about 13 years. So I've known him at what most would call the peak of his career. People constantly calling him to come into their town, to come into their church, to come speak. I've known him when he was the head of, an organiz- of a statewide organization. And now I know him in his post-retirement years. So I get to hear from him on occasion what you go through as a man who had great career success in the post-retirement years. And the battle that that instills. I don't know it. I've never experienced it. I'm not going to pretend to. I just know what he's told me. And the great thing about that is, is he's already given me an idea of how to see whenever I get to that age. But please listen to what this said. Even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your mind to another generation, your power to all those to come. If you're alive, God's not done trying to use you. You have wisdom. You have resources. You have experience. You have a legacy of walking with God that the next generation has to hear. It can be in your family. It can be in your neighborhood. It can be in your retirement home. It can be in your church. You got resources because you got a career's worth of wealth that you've built up. Like, not, I mean, I'm not saying that just because you're in your 50s, you're rich. I'm saying like... In your 50s, you're probably making more money than you were when you were 23. And it turns out we need to postpone at some point in the process this weekend. And Tanner, other Tanner, Braden's going to need postpones at some point. So you're saying, use me for my resources. No, I'm saying, use your resources to interact with the next generation. Because that actually changed my wife's life. A woman using her resources of, I can contribute to a mission trip if somebody would bring my fire back. To begin a conversation in a relationship with my wife that started three years, four years of regularly getting together and it changed our home. Because Linda Bruner knew that she's not done because she's still alive. I don't care how old you are. If God's got you here, it's because he's not done with you. So you can coast in and waste the time and live as a blind man in sight. 
where you can resolve that he's got me here in this thing is a Lord style praying, baby. And I will not let that parade pass me by. If I am still here, it is for a purpose. If I am still here, it's because there's somebody else for me to teach. It's because there's somebody else for me to proclaim this thing to. It's because there's somebody else that I can help accelerate their process of learning to see. No matter how much you are. Dallas and Jake are going to come up and play in just a moment. Discipleship when coupled with worship is how those that have sight learn how to see. But while they play, you've got to put shoes on this. If you've got vision but you've never really seen, and I'm going to ask you to take a moment and pray, and ask God to give you somebody. Or if you're part of this church, come ask one of your staff members how you can begin the process. Come ask one of your deacons how you can begin the process of learning how to see as somebody who has vision because I get tired of living blind five days a week. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Obedience doesn't begin on Monday. Obedience doesn't begin in the great hall afterwards. Obedience begins right now. We talked about it with our students last night. If you will not respond to God right now, you're not going to respond this week. I'm, I'm serious. Because there's something about movement right now that says, God, here's how much I mean this. Every week I'm like, yeah, God, I'll do that, I'll, I'll do that, I'll do that. And then I continue to sit on my duff right there. No, no, no. This time, right now, if I begin to move, I'm showing God that I care. And I care enough to actually move. Your students moved like crazy last night. We doubled the length of the invitation because they cared enough to do something with it. But that boomerang effect happens because they think it only happens there. Open dream dreams, young men, can, young men catch visions. Andy, I know how to see. I've been seeing for a long time. Great. Why don't you come pray to have somebody to share with you? Why don't you ask God to lay on your heart with a couple of you and your bride need to start asking to dinner? It'll change their home because it changed our home. We have great family here. Great family that we learn from regularly. There's something about this neutral third party that cares more about my marriage than my feelings that, that had a different impact on our house. And if you're still here, God's not done using you. So why don't you come let him know that you're willing to be used? But if you've never had that moment, you can say, Andy, it was right then. It's not a catechism class. It's not first communion. It's not I've always been in church. It's not I was born at Memorial Baptist. You don't inherit salvation from your hands. This is not a faith of your fathers. There is a moment. Nicodemus learned that in John chapter 3. Otherwise, that chapter ends at like verse 2. If you can receive salvation by association, if you can receive salvation by birthright, if you can receive salvation by class, Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus in John 3 ends right there in paragraph 1. But you've got to be born again, Jesus says. You've got to be brought from the dead to the life. Who tells? I'm still dead. We're not going to manipulate you. We're not going to control you. We're not going to do a seance. We're going to pray with you and ask you a loving question. I'm going to play. They're going to pray. Let's go to the throne room as fast as we can. Lord, I thank you for this church.
I thank you for Ridge and the culture that you have allowed him to set in this body and the vision that you have given him and his staff. And God, I thank you for what you did this weekend, but I thank you that it didn't end last night. And I pray that we not miss this opportunity to show our obedience to you. Lord, I love you. And I thank you that you cared not only enough to get vision, but to ensure that we learn how to see and walk with you. So that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and praise you in your name.